And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. I read of a, uh, a doctor who... Uh, from Texas and he owned a house in Mexico and he kind of felt sorry for the uh, some of the poor people there many of whom were sick because they drank unpasteurized milk so he bought them a pasteurizing machine and the villagers they built a special hut to, to keep it in and what have you and had a big celebration when they brought it down there and, and installed it well a few months later when the doctor returned the leading man of the village he greeted him by saying oh doctor uh, we're, we're so glad to see you if we'd known that you were coming we'd have plugged in the pasteurizing machine we chuckle at that but it describes the way that many Christians use their Bible they know that the truths of the Bible uh, would be good for whatever ails them, but they only plug it in for special occasions, like when the pastor comes around or something like that. The rest of the time, it's as useless as an unplugged pasteurizing machine. Now, D.A. Carson, does he, do you all know who D.A. is? D.A. is a, a noted um, New Testament scholar. Uh, he wrote an article, this is quite a few years ago, uh, for Christianity Today, and he says this, The supreme irony is that most Christians hear best what the Spirit is saying to someone else. Speak to the fundamentalist about the truth, and he hears you precisely because he doesn't need to. It's the person with fuzzy notions about the eternality of truth who will not hear Speak to the genuinely broad-minded ecumenist about love, and he will hear you, precisely because he doesn't need to. But fundamentalists of a harsher variety will not. Speak to the Ephesian Christians about discipline and perseverance and sound doctrine, and they will hear you, precisely because they don't need to. But will they hear when you speak of lovelessness? The one who tr truly hears what the Spirit says to the churches will be the one who is receptive to the words of God that he least wishes to hear, end quote. That hit me. Just, you just got to think about that and let it sink in. Now, Paul has spent an entire chapter uh, just hammering home the truth that we are justified by faith in Christ alone, not by our good works, not by our religious rituals, not by keeping the law of Moses, he uses Abraham as the prime example of a man who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But now as the chapter kind of wraps up, he wants us to plug it in personally. He doesn't want us to cheer and say, way to go, Paul, brilliant argument. You really stuck it to those Jews. No, he wants each of us to apply it on the most fundamental level so that we too are sure that the righteousness of Christ has been credited to our account by faith. Now, in, in uh, applying this to us, Paul gives us really a simple description of what a true Christian is. A true Christian personally believes in God who delivered over Jesus to pay for our sins and raised Him from the dead to confirm our justification. That's what a Christian is. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we ask that you would just continue to speak that truth in our heart, not a truth that just increases our head knowledge, Father, but that actually touches our heart and transforms our lives. That's what your word is for. It's not just for information, it is for transformation. So, Father, we submit to you, we bow the knee, as it were, and ask that you do a work in our heart that we can only attribute to you. So speak to us this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, first major point here, a, a Christian personally applies the lesson of Abraham's faith so that the righteousness of Christ is credited to him. Paul writes in verses 23 and 24, but the words, it was counted to him, that's from Genesis 15, were not written for his sake only. They weren't written for just the sake of Abraham, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Now, I want you to notice four things here. A, our faith must be personal. Verse 24 reads literally, to whom it is about to be credited. Now, the, firm, the verb about, is about to, that has a future reference from the standpoint of the Old Testament, looking ahead to God's promises as fulfilled in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Thomas Schreiner, he's a professor at Southern Seminary, a well-respected theologian. He paraphrases uh, that verse like this. He says, Genesis 15, 6 was written for the sake of those who would in the future be reckoned righteous by faith. In other words, Paul wants us to personally apply the truth of Abraham's being justified by faith. Now, we can see this in the text by the fact that Paul uses the pronoun, pronoun our four times. He says, for our sake also. Jesus, our Lord. Our transgressions and our justification. These truths must be ours personally. Now Spurgeon says you can never truly say our Lord until you have first said my Lord. Is Jesus your Lord because you personally have trusted in him for eternal life? Now Paul's point is that this chapter about Abraham and his faith, it's not just some little quaint history lesson that we need to be aware of. He, we need to apply it personally. The Bible was written first so that we would understand it, but then so that we would also apply it. Now, the, the story of Abraham is for your sake also. Has the righteousness of Christ been credited to your account? That's what eternal life, that's the beginning of eternal life. Has it happened to you? Romans 4 won't do you any good unless by faith you are a true son of Abraham, an heir according to God's promise. Also, Romans 4 shows the importance of understanding and applying the Old Testament. Some people are just kind of like anti-Old Testament. You know, I'm not. Uh, I love the Old Testament. Uh, Paul built this entire chapter on the story of Abraham's faith being credited to, his, to him as righteousness. If we don't understand the Old Testament, guess what, folks? We're not going to properly understand the New Testament. Paul's conviction that the Old Testament everywhere speaks to Christians is fundamental to his theology and to his preaching. In Romans 15, 4, he says, For whatever was written in earlier times. He's talking about their, what we call today the Old Testament. It's what they would have called their Bible, but they didn't call it a Bible. It's their scriptures, those 66 books. He says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures we might have hope. I've got two personal kind of short testimonies about this. Many years ago when I worked at TMH, um, I, 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 wor I worked on the weekends. And I mean, you were busy from the time you got there at 6 a.m. till about 2 o'clock 
you'd get all the morning work done, all the hospital stuff would be done, and you, you would have a time where you could just sit down and go, <sighs> first thing I did is grab my Bible and start reading. There was just something, there was encouragement in the Scripture, and it just felt good to read God's Word. I, I can't describe it. That may be unique to me. I doubt it is. How many of you have ever just tried that? Probably not many of you, but I'm telling you, there's something to it. Now, the second one is a little more acute. The first time I had an MRI, how many of you have had an MRI, the closed MRI? Did you happen to open your eyes in that MRI? If you do, you probably get scared if you're even slightly claustrophobic because the thing is right here in front of your face. Your arms are down by your side. You're in a missile tube. If your nose scratches, you can't itch it. You can't get up there. And I started panicking. So immediately, I shut my eyes and started quoting Scripture. And I just calmed right down. Now, I've had about four or five MRIs since. I learned my lesson. Just don't open your eyes and quote Scripture. You'll be fine. It really works. So before we leave this point, I want to ask you a couple questions. First, do you regularly read and understand and seek to apply the Old Testament? Reading through the entire Bible in a year, there are tons. I've got six or seven of them at my house that I've used. If you want one, let me know. So that you read the Old Testament, the New Testament through in one year. It's good. Do not neglect the Old Testament. Second, have you put your faith in Christ alone, trusting in God to, or trusting God to credit Christ's righteousness to your account? If you've not done that, that, then you are not a Christian in the most important sense of the word. A Christian personally believes in Jesus Christ. Well, B, our second thing we want to see out of this is our faith must be like the faith of Abraham. Paul's emphasis here is on the continuity and the similarity of Abraham's faith and our faith. As he said in verse 12, we must follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham. And then in verse 16, we are to be of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now, last week we saw the nature of Abraham's faith, which is really an example for our faith. Abraham believed God's promises, and so should we. Now, in his case, it was God's promise to give him an heir through Sarah. Not through Hagar, not through the handmaiden, but through his actual wife, Sarah. Later, we would know that would be Isaiah, uh, Isaiah Isaac. Uh, so, and not only that, God had promised to give him land. He had promised to make him the father of many nations and to bless the nations through his seed. Now, those promises were ultimately fulfilled in Christ. But Abraham died in faith without receiving the promises, the book of Hebrews tells us. In our case, we look back in the past to God's promise to justify sinners who believe in Christ. Now also, Abraham believed God's promises in spite of circumstances that really seemed to be to the contrary. Both he and Sarah were beyond the years where they could physically conceive children. It required a miracle for God to fulfill his promise. And verse 18 says, but in hope against hope, he believed. Now, as we look at our own hearts and realize how sinful we have been and because of our sin nature, how we are inclined towards sin even now, it seems at times impossible for God to save us. 
But like Abraham, we must believe God's promise in spite of circumstances that seem to the contrary. Abraham also believed that God was able to give life to the dead and to call into being that which did not exist. In Abraham's case, it was his and Sarah's dead bodies, their deadness, the deadness of Sarah's womb, which is incapable of conceiving a child. Now later, Abraham's faith focused on God raising Isaac from the dead. Remember, chapter 22, God told him, go sacrifice Isaac. Hebrews tells us that the reason that he was doing it is because he was counting on God raising Isaac from the dead. Now, in our case, we must believe that God raised Jesus bodily from the dead. That is part of the gospel. Paul says this is the essential things, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We must also understand that every time God saves a soul, He is giving life to the dead. He is calling into being that which did not exist. In other words, the new birth is a miraculous, life-giving event. Now also, Abraham's faith grew strong and gave glory to God, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Well, even so, our faith in Christ must grow stronger as we study God's Word and learn more of His attributes and His ways. We don't glory in our strong faith. We glory in our strong God. Our faith should point others to Him because He alone is truly faithful. Notice also that in chapter 3, verse 26, Paul talks about God justifying the one who has faith in Jesus. But here in verse 24, he talks about believing in Him who raised Jesus from the dead, namely, God the Father. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he expresses his concern that some people speak only about Jesus, but they never mention God the Father. Others put the emphasis on God, but they don't see their need for Jesus. And others put all of their emphasis on the Holy Spirit, and others put virtually none. Lloyd-Jones' plea is that we maintain the balance of Scripture where everything starts with God, and guess what? Ends with God. The work of Christ is designed to bring us to God and to reconcile us to Him. The work of the Holy Spirit is to, to apply the work of Christ to us who believe. But it is all aimed at bringing us to glorify God. And do you know how that's, that's how it's all going to end? Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 15. He says that God is going to put everything under the feet of Jesus until the end when Jesus will give the kingdom back to the Father. God is the one that's going to receive the glory through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. We need to understand that. So our faith must be personal and it must be like the faith of Abraham, although because of God's promise being fulfilled in Christ, guess what? We have a whole lot more revelation than Abraham ever did. We know the end. What, what he was looking forward to has happened, and now we look back at it. We'll see our faith must have specific content, namely what scriptures reveal about God, about sin, about Christ, and about salvation. As we saw in our last study, Abraham didn't have faith in himself or faith in his faith or uh, faith in positive thinking or anything like that. No, he believed the specific promises of God. Even so, our faith must have the specific content of what the Bible teaches about God, that he's holy, he's just, that he's loving. 
We must believe the biblical, biblical revelation about the pervasiveness of human sin, which actually renders all of us incapable of seeking after God or pleasing Him apart from Christ. We must believe in the full deity and sinless humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to die as a substitute for sinners. And we must believe that we are saved, that is, rescued from God's wrath by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, it's important to say that our faith must have specific content because there are those out there who make the false distinction that our faith must be personal but not propositional. Now, what do I mean by propositional? It just means that it's based on propositions, statements which we believe are true. This is true, therefore we believe this, okay? Um, they argue that we must believe in Jesus, but not in specific doctrines about Jesus or about salvation. They contend that doctrine only divides, and so we should set it aside and just believe in Jesus without the doctrines. But clearly, just look at chapter 4 here. Paul did not spend this entire chapter arguing that we are justified by faith alone if that doctrine does not matter for our salvation. You know, the Bible's not only filled with stories. It's got a bunch of doctrines that are vitally important to our salvation and our spiritual health. Jehovah's Witness and Mormons, they claim to believe as Jesus, believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But their doctrines contradict and deny the Jesus and the way of salvation that's set forth in the Bible. Uh, there are many Roman Catholics, Orthodox Christians, and Protestants who believe in the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormon Jesus. But contrary to Scripture, they believe that we are saved at least in part by the addition of our works. But I want you to think back what Paul said to the Judaizers. They were the ones who taught that to be saved, yes, you must believe in Jesus, but you have to add, you, you have to keep the Mosaic law as well, especially circumcision. Paul twice, Galatians 1.8 and 1.9, says that they are accursed. They are damned for preaching a false gospel. Well, we have to believe in sound doctrine, especially regarding doctrines related to salvation. Now, of course, some doctrines in the Bible, they're more important than other doctrines are. We shouldn't divide over minor doctrinal differences or even over uh, what might be considered major doctrines such as biblical prophecy where you have godly men on one of five sides, <laughs> right? We don't divide over things like that. We need wisdom. We need discernment to major in the things that matter. We all need to be growing in our understanding of, of the content of the Bible such of all of it, so that we don't minimize key doctrines or maximize minor ones. And that's on us to know the difference. Well, D, our faith must appropriate the righteousness of Christ as our own. Paul uses the word credited 11 times in chapter 4 to hammer home the point that righteousness before God is a forensic matter. When I say forensic, I, I mean a legal. It's a declaration. It's not a matter of God making us righteous or infusing righteousness into us. That's a good definition for sanctification. 
where we are continually being conformed into the image of the Son, and little by little we are becoming more righteous. But justification is God's declaring us righteous based on Jesus taking all of our sins on, the, on Himself on the cross. God credits the perfect righteousness of Christ to every ungodly person who simply believes in Him. Now, I've said it before, God does not credit our faith as righteousness, as if faith were a work on our part that God agrees to accept as payment for our sins. Our faith is not viewed as some sort of righteousness that's good enough to cover our sins. Rather, faith simply lays hold of Jesus Christ, who becomes the righteousness of God for us. By faith, God's righteousness in Christ is applied to us. So when Paul talks about faith being credited as righteousness in verses 3, 5, 9, and 22, it's the same thing as when he says that God credits righteousness to us apart from works. The righteousness of faith, that's verses 11 and 13, that's God's righteousness that comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. John Piper, he devotes an entire message to explain this uh, in much more detail than I can do here. He uses this illustra illustration. He says, suppose I say to Barnabas, my 16-year-old son, clean up your room before you go to school. You must have a clean room or you won't be able to go and watch the game tonight. Well, suppose he plans poorly and leaves for school without cleaning the room. Suppose I discover the messy room and clean it for him. His afternoon fills up and he gets home just before it's time to leave for the game and realizes what he has done. And he feels terrible. He apologizes and he humbly accepts the consequences. To which I say, Barnabas, I am going to credit your apology and submission as a clean room. I said you must have a clean room or you won't be able to go watch the game tonight. Your room is clean, so you can go to the game. What I mean when I say I credit your apology as a clean room is not that the apology is a clean room, nor that he really cleaned his room. I cleaned it. It was pure grace. All I mean is that in my way of reckoning, in my grace, his apology connects him with the promise given for a clean room. The clean room is his clean room. I credit it to him. Or I credit his apology as a clean room. You can say it either way. And Paul said it both ways. Faith is credited as a righteousness, and God credits righteousness to us through faith. End quote. So when God says to those who believe in Christ, I credit your faith as righteousness, he doesn't mean that your faith is righteousness. He means that your faith connects you to God's righteousness. So Paul is saying that a, a Christian personally applies the lesson of Abraham's faith so that the righteousness of Christ is credited to him. Have you done that? It is essential. Well, number two, a Christian believes that God delivered over Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins. Now, we're focusing on one little phrase here. He says, he who, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions. Delivered over is passive. What it means is Jesus did not deliver himself. He was delivered over, and it's by God. 
There is a sense in which Jesus voluntarily gave himself over to death. He tells us that, I believe it's in John 10. Uh, Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. But there is another sense in which the Father delivering over the Son is not in question. It relies in substance, substance on Isaiah 53, 12. It states this of the Messiah. His soul was delivered over to death. And he was numbered among the transgressors. And he bore the sins of many and was delivered over because of their iniquity. So twice in verse 12, uh, Isaiah, God through Isaiah tells us that the Messiah was delivered over. He says in just a few verses earlier in verse 6, he says, The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So the Lord caused that. Or again, Isaiah 53.10, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt, guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days. Now those last two phrases, they pertain to the resurrection, and we're going to talk about that in just a second here. Peter mentions God's delivering over Jesus to be crucified in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, the very first Christian sermon, Acts chapter 2. In verse 23, Peter says, this man, he's talking about Jesus, this man delivered over by the, eh, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godly men and put him to death. Now, Peter goes on to affirm that God also raised him from the dead. But the point is, our salvation, which includes at its center Jesus' death on the cross, it was not just a moment of uh, unfortunate history when men gained the upper hand. Although we, they were fully responsible for the sin, the crucifixion was God's predetermined plan to give His eternal Son to pay the penalty for our sins. A Christian believes that salvation is from the Lord so that it is, all of it, is to the praise of the glory of His grace, which is what it says in Ephesians 1.6. Well, finally, number three, a Christian believes that God raised Jesus bodily from the dead to confirm our justification. Paul emphasizes Jesus' resurrection from the dead twice here. He says, Him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, and then Jesus was raised because of our justification. Now, as Paul argues in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is central to our faith and forgiveness. And it's based on solid, verified eyewitness testimony. He says there in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Paul begins his chapter, uh, begins his letter to the Romans there in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. He says that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So the resurrection puts God's kind of stamp of approval on the death of Jesus as payment in full for the sins of all who would ever believe. Now, the phrase, Jesus, our Lord, it's one of those hours again. It emphasized both his deity and his humanity. Jesus took on human flesh so that he could bear our sins. But he didn't give up his deity. He is still the Lord. But as I said, we must trust him as our Lord personally. Now, the phrase, raised because of our justification, it's a, it's a bit difficult it's parallel with the phrase, delivered up because of our transgressions. 
Now, perhaps the simplest way to understand it is that Jesus was delivered up to death as a consequence or because of our sin. We understand that. That's why he went to the cross, because of our sin. He was raised as a consequence or because of our justification, which Christ achieved by his death. Uh, in other words, when God raised Jesus, he put his seal of approval on Christ's death as obtaining our justification. So the resurrection confirms that our justification was valid and that it was acceptable to the Father. Now note carefully that not everyone is justified. Paul tells us that Jesus' death only justifies those in him, those who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. In other words, this truth that God delivered Jesus over to pay for our sins and raised him from the dead to affirm our justification, it'll only save you if you personally believe it. The pasteurizing machine only benefits you if you actually plug it in and use it to pasteurize your milk. This wonderful doctrine of justification by faith that Paul has spent an entire chapter hammering home was not written, as I said earlier, as just a quaint little history lesson about Abraham. It was written, Paul says, for your sake. God will credit the righteousness of Christ to your account the instant that you believe in Him. Jesus' resurrection from the dead affirms that that is true. That is the way it is. So what is a Christian? A Christian is a person who personally, personally believes in God who delivered over Jesus to pay for our sins and raise Him from the dead to confirm our justification. Make sure that you're a true Christian through faith in Christ alone. Well, let's pray. Father, this is a, a message that talks about the centrality of the truth of the gospel, that it is God-centered, Christ-centered. It is not man-centered, Father. It comes from you, and we humbly accept it. So, Father, if there's anybody in here today who does not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they have never, never come to you recognizing their sin, I pray that you would open their eyes, uh, take the wax out of their ears and the hardness of their heart away so they can see Jesus for who he really is. They can see their need for a Savior. Father, do that today and we'll give you praise for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.